Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Good evening tonight, an exclusive interview with Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen on her former company's role in the spread of COVID misinformation and disinformation. It is about the doctors and nurses who have to cope with conspiracies about COVID-19 and vaccines. It is about people who have suffered harassment online. Facebook knows what is happening on the platform, and they have systematically underinvested in fighting those harms. They know they do far too little about it. In fact, they have incentives for it to be this way. That's a portion of her congressional testimony from yesterday. She's going to expand on that tonight on this program. Also exclusive reporting from CNN's Donny O'Sullivan on how the social network Facebook makes money on the anti-vaccine message. This comes at the end of a day that saw seven new cases, the Omicron variant identified, which is not unexpected, but certainly underscores the need to get on top of the situation. It prompted Pfizer CEO Albert Borla late today to tweet that his company has asked the FDA to expand authorization for booster doses of its COVID vaccine to include 16 and 17-year-olds. Quoting now uh, from him, it is our hope to provide strong protection for as many people as possible, particularly in light of the new variant, he said. Now, when he posted that, there were two new reported cases, one in Minnesota, the other in Colorado. Late today, New York added five new cases. Today also saw President Biden visit the National Institutes of Health just outside Washington and unveil new COVID-fighting policies. They include tighter testing requirements for travelers coming into the U.S. and extending the current mask mandate for domestic planes, trains, and buses. He touched on that in his remarks today, but made vaccination, especially boosters, the heart of his message, using the B word more than two dozen times. The CDC, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, and our top public officials recommend all adults, all adults get a booster shot when it's time. But here's the deal. More than about 100 million are eligible for boosters, but haven't gotten the booster shot yet. Folks, if you're over the age of 18 and you got vaccinated before June the 2nd, six months has gone by. Go get your booster now. Go get it now. There's a big hitch in those plans, though, because as successful as the president hopes to be at ensuring everyone can get a vaccine or booster, it's still demand, not supply, that's the problem. And sadly, something as basic and fact-based as preventing a deadly illness still breaks down along party lines. New polling from the Kaiser Family Foundation shows just 36 percent of Republicans saying they will get a booster compared to 77 percent of Democrats. That's more than a two to one gap. But again, this is not simply driven by politics. It is reinforced on social media. So joining us now with his exclusive new reporting on how Facebook is profiting from pumping anti-vaccine information into the public sphere CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan. So what have you learned? 
Yeah, Anderson. So a Fox News personality caused outrage a few nights ago when she compared uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci to a Nazi doctor, the angel of debt. Uh, but this sort of stuff is not happening in a vacuum. In fact, it's all over people's Facebook feeds. And I want to show you uh, some of the ads we found on Facebook that the platform has been allowing to run and profit from uh, over just the past few months. One ad here, it says, I'm originally from America, but I currently reside in uh, 1941 Germany. Uh, another shows a picture of a vaccine and says slowly and quietly, but it's a Holocaust again playing into this ridiculous idea uh, that the vaccine is, is is a part of a mass slaughter regime. Mm. And then going to the lines of political violence, we have ads that say, uh, make hanging traitors great again. Facebook will often like to frame a lot of these issues in the free speech context. They're saying, oh, we don't want to trample on speech mm. too much. But these are actual ads that they are accepting, that they are running, and that they are taking money for to target to their users. And I mean, are these still up? What, what is Facebook saying about this? So Facebook will always pout and promote that they have all these moderators, all this artificial intelligence that can catch these ads, which are clear violations of their rules. But they didn't catch them until CNN brought them to their attention. The ad about comparing uh, the U.S. government crackdown and restrictions on COVID to the Nazi regime and come uh, calling a, a the vaccines a, a Holocaust tool. Uh, those two ads got taken down, Facebook said, after CNN brought it to their attention. But that ad, and I don't know if we can show it again, make hanging traders great again, um, that's still up on the platform. That's not seemingly against Facebook's rules, even mm. though this is just months after we saw gallows outside the Capitol and people uh, chanting, hang Mike Pence. Some, some of these... Um were run on Instagram, which is owned by Facebook. The CEO, I think, of Instagram is going to be testifying. Do we know what we expect to hear from him? Well, we're probably going to hear something along the lines of, uh, we know we have some issues, uh, we have some work to do, but we're still doing great and we're catching 99.999% of everything. This is it's clearly not the case. I mean, you know, we poked around a little, we found these ads very, very easily. If we're able to find them, right. a trillion-dollar company with, with Facebook, with that resources, they should be able to find And again, it's important to point themselves. out, this is not just some individual posting that picture at free speech. This is an ad that Facebook is actually profiting from. This is an ad. You know, one ad that was run, I think they only had to spend four or 500 bucks, and they were able to reach, I think, up to half a million people. Wow. Uh, and people in specific states, a lot of states we saw targeted with some specific ads, uh, Florida, Texas, a lot of states where there is those major mm. COVID issues or we've seen those spikes mm. throughout the year. Uh, and fascinating. Donnie Sullivan, appreciate Thanks. it. Uh, perspective now from former Facebook executive Frances Haugen in her first interview since testifying before the House Subcommittee on Communications and Technology. Francis, this reporting from Donnie O'Sullivan shows that Facebook is not only allowing posts that compare the vaccine to the Holocaust, but they're actually profiting from it. They're accepting money to run them as paid ads. Why is this happening? I mean, they don't, why did they, is that part of the business model? Facebook's business model is uh, conditioned on fixing problems after they find them. Facebook has known since 2018, Mark has publicly made comments on it, Mark Zuckerberg has made comments saying engagement-based ranking, that means prioritizing content or ads based on their ability to provoke a reaction from you, which is usually the most extreme and polarizing content, is dangerous because people are drawn to engage with extreme content. But Mark said at the time, it's okay, AI will save us. The only problem is the AI misses lots and lots of problems. In the case of hate speech, only 3 to 5% of hate speech is caught. I wouldn't be surprised that if they had policies against anti-vaccine content like this, 
that they let a similar amount of bad content through. It's been almost two months since you uh, spoke out about Facebook's misinformation problems. And when you see ads like this that say, you know, I'm originally from America, but I currently yeah. reside in 1941 Germany on the platform this week. Mm. Are you surprised that this is still so prevalent? I'm not surprised at all. One of the things that I think most people don't understand is that while I've spent most of my time talking about how engagement-based ranking amplifies the most extreme and polarizing content in our news feeds, the same happens with ads. Ads that are provocative, that elicit extreme emotions from us, are cheaper to run than more centrist or compassionate ads. Think about it. Which one provokes you to do an angry comment? One of those ads like you described or an ad saying, I support our nurses. Facebook uh, knows there are these problems in their systems. They know that psychologists have known for decades it's easier to provoke people to anger. And the biases and the algorithms end up giving the most reach for the least amount of dollars to extreme content like these. You testified yesterday. You said that you thought they could, they could reduce misinformation by 25% overnight with changes to its algorithm. You think, it, I mean, it's that easy? Oh, yeah. Um, there are multiple components to Facebook's ranking systems where people have known for years that even single terms, single factors in the systems were increasing uh, misinformation dramatically. Facebook has a whole series of these interventions that don't, in, that don't involve censorship. They don't involve looking at good ideas and bad ideas. They just involve not running the system so hot. Facebook knows that when they let the system run hot, run fast, they make more money. And if Facebook had to go in there and stand accountable, it's likely that they would choose safer settings and they'd be willing to go up these little tiny slices of profit, 0.1% here, half a percent of point, point there, but we would have significantly less misinformation, not just in English, but in all the other languages in the world, the vast majority of which get no safety systems from Facebook. After your first Senate hearing in October, Facebook came out against you, as you obviously know. They released a statement that said in part, uh, that you worked for the company for less than two years, had no direct reports, never attended a decision point meeting with C-level executives. Were you at all surprised that they chose to try to attack you like that, dismiss you as a, a low-level employee? Uh, the thing that Facebook didn't disclose is what my relative seniority was in the company. You know, by the time I left, I was more senior than at least 60 percent, if not 70 percent of people, because in tech, turnover is really fast. The second thing is I worked at four social media companies, all of which in algorithmic roles. Mm. Um, as a result, like I'm one of the foremost experts in the industry at understanding the problems with AI systems in a social media context. It's true. I've never been in a C-suite meeting. But, you know, I, I also brought out an extensive cache of documents that demonstrates that Facebook has consistently lied about the safety options that exist, about its un about the fact that it's not doing everything it can to fight these problems, and that they're not willing to sacrifice slivers of profit for our safety. You, you said the company would be stronger if Zuckerberg stepped down as CEO. If, A, do, I mean, do you think that's at all likely? And if you were the CEO of Facebook, I mean, what is the first change you would make? Or, you know, on day one, what would you, your agenda be? You know, when I originally came forward, I, I, I really don't like personalizing conflicts. Like, I think the problems with Facebook are about incentives and about organizational choices. But when Mark came out and said, hey, I know we've called out all these things that are endangering people's lives as a result of our underinvestment in safety on the platform, I know what the solution is. We should find 10,000 new engineers to build video games. Like, when that happened, um, like, that was, that was a real—it uh, it made me think maybe more needs to be done. 
Um, maybe someone who's willing to accept responsibility for the power that Facebook has should be in, in control. Um, if I had the ability to direct, if I could wave a magic wand and direct the company, I think the first thing I would do is have a radically more transparent stance with the academic community, the civil society community, the government, because Facebook has problems that need tens of thousands more people working on them. And right now, Facebook cannot solve those problems because every team in the company is understaffed. And it will only continue to get worse because every time there's a scandal, it's harder for Facebook to hire. The only way Facebook can rebuild trust with the community and with the world is through things like transparency and being willing to you know, open the book and say, this is what we're actually doing to solve these problems. We're not going to wave our hands and say we're working on it anymore. I mean, why is with all their money, why are they understaffed? Um, I think there's a process of, you know, every time a scandal happens, it gets harder to hire, right? Um, and, and that's one of the things about feedback cycles. You know, face, part of what I said originally in my testimony was that Facebook needs a, mo a moment to declare moral bankruptcy, right? The way we move forward is with truth and reconciliation. And because Facebook is unwilling to admit the problems it has and is unwilling to say, okay, we need a reset. Like, I made mistakes. I accept responsibility, but we need to move forward. Because they're not willing to do that, it's hard for, for, for people to hold them, um, have, have good faith in them. I, and I it makes it harder to hire. I don't know much about the metaverse. I don't really, I'm not smart enough to understand mm -hmm. what the future of, of tech is. is. Uh, but if Facebook is morally bankrupt, does it concern you, the idea of them going all in on creating a uh, new to, universe? So, so, Anderson? Yeah. And so, Anderson, to clarify you, it's not that I said that they are morally bankrupt. I said they need to declare moral bankruptcy. I see. Like bankruptcy is a process where people get financial freedom, right? They say, I messed up. I accept the consequences. It's going to be painful for a couple of years. But society says we value people's lives more than we value money. Okay. And I, I'm saying that Facebook right now is stuck. They're stuck in a feedback loop. And they need to start solving pr problems together with the community and not alone because they're having trouble moving forward alone. Mm. But with regard to the metaverse, um, I don't think Facebook has demonstrated that they are, are designing safety first. You know, I want you to imagine for a second, let's say you're 19 and you come home from school and you put on your headset and suddenly, you're more handsome than you were before. Your apartment's nicer. Your clothes are nicer. Your hair's nicer. You spend all evening in this fantasy world. And then you go to bed, and you, you go brush your teeth. And you look in the mirror, and now your hair's worse. Your body's worse. Your apartment's worse. What does that do to you as a person, right? I worry that the kinds of problems, this is, that the, met, the vision of the metaverse that Mark is promoting are going to do to people. And I, I can't imagine Facebook is building in plans for that right now. And I hate the idea that we might get five years or 10 years down the line and, and, and spend all 10 years saying we're seeing these problems with addiction. You're, you're ruining people's lives before Facebook stops gaslighting us that they exist. We need more transparency and we need it up front. Francis Haugen, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Have a good day. Well, after reportedly writing in his book that the former president tested positive for COVID three days before his first debate with Joe Biden, former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows is calling it fake news. Our Gloria Borger has some new reporting that may explain why he's doing that. Also ahead, new information about the 15-year-old sophomore accused of killing four high school students and injuring seven others, why his parents were at the school just hours before the shooting. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows is trying to walk back some explosive claims he reportedly made in his new book about the former president's positive COVID test. 
Now, before we get to his denial, let's just take a look at the timeline because it's it's important. As was first reported in The Guardian, Meadows reveals in his soon-to-be-released memoir that the former president first tested positive for COVID September 26. That was three days before his first debate with uh, then-Vice President Joe Biden. Meadows and the former president are now pointing out that he tested negative after testing positive. That same day, he hosted a White House event both inside and outside for then-Supreme Court nominee Amy Coney Barrett. At least 12 attendees later tested positive there. The next day, September 27th, he hosted an indoor White House reception for Gold Star families, followed by a maskless news conference in the White House briefing room. On September 29th, which was debate day, Meadows reports the former president was moving slower than usual, but, quote, nothing was going to stop him from going out there. On October 1st, the former president finally acknowledged that he had coronavirus, and on October 2nd, he was hospitalized. Now, yesterday, the former president called the reporting on the claim in Meadows' book that he tested positive on September 26th fake news. And just a few hours later, Meadows went on Newsmax and seemed to agree with his former boss. I believe the president says it's fake news. What, what is the story here? Well, the, the president is right. It's fake news. Uh, if, you, if you actually read the, the book, uh, right. the context of it, uh, that story outlined a false positive. Uh, literally had, had a test, had uh, two other tests after that that showed that uh, he didn't have COVID during the debate. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, the way that the media wants yeah. to spin it, uh, is is certainly to be as negative about Donald Trump as they possibly can uh, while giving Joe Biden a pass. So that's true, at least according to Meadows' account that is reportedly in the book, that the former president tested negative after testing positive. What Meadows didn't say there that is reportedly in the book is that Meadows was telling everyone in the former president's immediate circle to treat him as if he was positive. Maybe Meadows left that part out of the interview he did with Newsmax because what our Gloria Borger is now learning about the former president's reaction to uh, the revelation about his positive test. She joins us now, along with CNN medical analyst Dr. Lena Wen, author of the book Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. So, Gloria, the former president is disputing what is reportedly in this book written by Meadows, and that's it. Meadows himself seems to agree. What more are you learning about the former president's reaction to all this? So he agrees that what he wrote was fake news because we reported what's in the book badly. And of course, that's that's not true. What I'm learning is that the former president, uh, according to a source who's familiar with the president's thinking, is that the former president is furious about uh, what is in the book and that he's angry uh, with Mark Meadows. Now, I was told by one source that Meadows and the president uh, have not had a close relationship. Uh, but other sources are telling uh, other reporters at CNN that it is a relationship that's been fine because don't forget, Mark Meadows is on the Trump train for 2024, but that the president uh, is mad about the way Meadows characterized all of this uh, in the book. So what I think we are witnessing on Newsmax is Mark Meadows trying to get back in the president's good graces and saying, yeah, blame it on the press. What I was trying to tell you is that all the president had was a false positive and that's it. And uh, move on. But, you know, Gloria, what's interesting about this is the White House then went out of their way and the former president, too, to avoid ever acknowledging when he got a his first uh, positive test for COVID. I mean, if you think back to that time, 
there were this was an open this was a question of of could he have possibly been positive during the debate um and sure. he would never come forward and say yes i i tested positive on this date uh you know days before he th- they didn't want to go there yeah and meadows is also saying there were three tests we think there were two. We, we don't know about any kind of third test. We know that the debate required uh, a negative test 72 hours. Right. And the debate themselves, for some odd reason, did not test on that day right before the debate. I find right. that. Well, if you'll recall, if you recall, we all noticed the president arrived late. There is an honor system. And, you know, they obviously told the folks there, you know, he had tested negative, And so he right. went on to the debate stage. There was, you know, that was the that was the situation. But, um, you know, that's not in, in the excerpt of the book that The Guardian printed. And again, we haven't seen the book. Um, that's not that's not mentioned. Dr. Wynn, just in terms of the timeline of, of when the former president started showing symptoms and was taken to Walter Reed, does a positive test on September 26, as the Meadows book uh, you know, reportedly says took place, does that make the most sense since he was hospitalized with Walter Reed on October 2nd? Yes, because the previous timeline made no sense to those of us who have actually treated COVID patients. And that's because you don't go from zero to 100 overnight. And so what we had heard was that October 1st was when former President Trump first started testing positive. He first started having symptoms. Then by the next day, he was so severely ill that he had low oxygen saturation. He had such severe shortness of breath that he had to be airlifted and go to the hospital and be in the ICU. When at that time, the clinical course for the variants that were dominant were that there were about five to eight days between when you first start having your symptoms to when you start having shortness of breath. And so one day just made no sense. And so this is the reason why so many of us were asking at the time, when was he, when when did he test positive? And also when was his last negative test? By the way, there's one question that would actually, I think, help us to solve this issue of, did people really think that this was a false positive, which is when did President Trump actually get monoclonal antibodies? Because for someone his age, who's older, who has chronic medical illnesses, who's the president, if he tested positive and his medical team really believed he tested positive, they would have given him monoclonal antibodies on September 26th or shortly thereafter. We know that he got those antibodies, but we don't know when. And I think finding out that question will really help us to understand, did his medical team and the president think that he really had COVID? Gloria, so The Guardian reported, as I mentioned, that that in the book, Meadows says he he told people in the former president's uh, circle, uh, or quote, sorry, he told people in the former in the former president's quote immediate circle to treat him as if he was positive end quote. Even after the negative tests, which obviously doesn't it doesn't seem to square with what Meadows is now saying that oh well, no he got a a negative test or he got two negative tests and uh, so he was totally fine. I mean if he's telling people treat this guy like he's positive. What does it say about the then first family going maskless at the debate? And also, I mean, with gold star families, for goodness sakes. Right. I mean, it's it's hard to parse here. I mean, first of all, who is in the president's inner circle? Isn't the family in the president's inner circle? And also, what does that mean about contact tracing? We've seen pictures of the family sitting maskless at the debate, even though the Cleveland Clinic had asked everyone to be wearing masks. Wearing a mask. And and you, uh, Dr. Wen knows more about this than I do, but shouldn't you be doing contact tracing with people who were in immediate contact with the President of the United States? And I would presume 
that would mean his immediate family. So how how to explain the fact that they would go maskless in a place that is actually asking people to wear masks if they knew that he had had uh, even a false positive at a certain point? Right. Because from the moment he gets a false positive, wouldn't you start saying to people, uh, okay, we have to figure out ju- just who the president Right. You, you would if you were a decent human being or yeah. with any sense of shame. All the people sitting there who we just saw on camera, you know, the the Eric Trump, Donnie Jr., uh, you know, the whole, uh, you know, the whole Michigas there, uh, <laughs> you know, they are shameless. And clearly, you know, we're making a very particular point by going maskless. Dr. Wen, looking back on it now, I mean, in light of the claims in Meadows' book, should the former president or his family even have been at that debate? I mean, shouldn't they have been quarantining? Absolutely. So to be clear, anyone, I don't care if it's the president, former president, or anybody else, if you have symptoms and you have a positive test, you should not be going anywhere. You should be in isolation. Also, if you're a close contact, to Gloria's point, if you're a close contact, and certainly a family who live with him should be close contacts. If you are a close contact of somebody who tested positive, you should be in quarantine if you are unvaccinated, which they were at the time. You should not be going anywhere. And also, you should not be test shopping. You don't get a test, and then once it's positive and you don't like that, you take more tests until you get until it becomes negative. That's that's not the way this should work. Uh, Dr. Lena Wen, Gloria Borgia, I appreciate it. Thank you. Up next, new developments in that deadly Michigan high school shooting, including new information about the teenage suspects concerning behavior in the days before the massacre. The Oakland County prosecutor joins us next. New information tonight about the concerning behavior of the 15-year-old accused of killing four students and injured seven others during an attack at his high school in Oakland County, Michigan on Tuesday. Today, the Oakland County Sheriff said two teachers separately reported their concerns about the sophomore starting the day before the deadly shooting he's accused of. He also revealed that school officials met with him twice, including once with his parents just hours before the killings. After that meeting, he was sent back to class. The suspect's behavior in the days leading up to the shooting may not be the only red flag. Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald joins us now. Ms. McDonald, appreciate you being with us. What updates are you able to share with us tonight on, on where the investigation stands? Well, we've issued charges uh, against the um, shooter, uh, four counts of first-degree murder, uh, seven counts of assault with intent to murder, and then a charge of terrorism causing death, which at the time I, I didn't know, but uh, is quite unique. And and that came about because we were sitting down and talking about what the charges were going to be. And when you look at the victims in this case, there were four murdered children. There were several other injured, but then there's this whole group of people, um, these students who were traumatized and the entire community. I mean, there's hundreds of students that witnessed this, that heard this, that, that literally ran for their lives. And they, they need to have a voice too. This, this is a tragic, tragic, horrific crime. But we also need to recognize that those kids are not eating, they're not sleeping, they're, they're, they're in shock and they're terrified to go back to school. Um, and they're also mourning, mourning the loss of their friends. So that's, that's why we charge terrorism. Uh, sometime tomorrow, though, my office will be announcing, I will be announcing um, potential 
whether or not we'll be issuing potential charges against uh, uh, the young person's, the shooter's uh, parents. You, you, you mentioned that, um, you, you know, that your office is trying to determine whether or not the shooter's parents will, uh, will face charges. Do you know yet what those charges might look like if, if you did? Um, you said you're going to make an announcement on, on this tomorrow. I assume some of this, at the very least, would be related to uh, the purchase of the weapon or the storage of the weapon that, according to reporting, was bought by his father uh, several days before this shooting. The purchase of the weapon, the accessibility of the weapon, was it securely stored? Uh, was it um, was it purchased for the the shooter? Um, did the parents have any reasonable idea that he may use that weapon to hurt other people? Those are all things that we're considering, um, and we'll consider uh, when we announce whether we will charge them or not. You also noted that there's an additional piece of evidence that is yet to be released. And obviously, look, I, I certainly know the position you're in. There's a lot you can't say. You don't want to, you know, impact a potential future jury. I don't know if there's anything you can say even in general terms of what that other uh, thing relates to. There's the consideration of impacting a potential juror, Anderson. But there's there's also another thing that I hold that weighs on me, which is... Um, I, I, these parents are in such terrible, horrible grief. It's, it's a terrible thing what happened. Um, the information that will be announced tomorrow uh, will, will also um, disclose that it, it probably could have been prevented. And that is, is unconscionable. Um, so it, it's just not enough to charge this shooter and, and, and prosecute and convict and incarcerate. That is, we, we will do that. I will do that passionately um, like these were my own children. But, but the question we have to ask now is, what are we going to do? Because we, we have to do better. And I believe part of that is holding people accountable. Gun ownership is a right, but with that right uh, comes responsibilities and duties. And if you're going to be a responsible gun owner, and I know several of them, I grew up with, with the guns in my home. My dad was a hunter. Um, I'm certainly not saying people shouldn't have guns. I'm saying that they should be held accountable um, to what happens to that gun. You, you must secure it safely. You must make, make sure that it doesn't um, end up in the hands of somebody that intends to do harm, or in this case, go into a school, come out of a bathroom, shoot any person that he could find and murder children. Somebody has to be accountable. And yes, we're going to hold him accountable, but we're also going to make sure that the, the, the person or the individuals that gave him access to that weapon and did so, and not just a negligible way, far beyond negligence, um, are, are held accountable. And, you know, I, I spoke to the, to these parents, um, the day after this happened. And, you know, I've, I've done a lot of things in my career. I've prosecuted really terrible crimes. I, I was a family court judge and I'm a mom. But I will tell you, those are some of the most painful moments of my life to, because there's just nothing we can say. They sent their children to school. And that should be a place where 
when you take your child to school, that's the place we don't worry about them. I mean, Anderson, you're a parent. I'm a parent. I've heard from so many parents across the country. They want people to be held accountable. And that doesn't mean you can't have a gun. It means that if you're going to own a gun, you should do so safely. You said it, what the parents did, uh, it, you didn't, I'm paraphrasing and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was far beyond just negligence, negligently leaving the gun unsecured or whatever the, the details of it may be. Are, are you saying that they somehow encouraged him to have a weapon or to give him the weapon? Uh, can you say? I'm not saying anything uh, definitive at this moment. And, and again, you understand why I, yeah. I can't do that. It's not respectful to the victims at this point. Um, I will say that it's, it's, it doesn't take encouragement to um, harm or kill people that would rise to the level of, of criminal culpability. It, it takes the knowledge and the probability that that, that may happen and then knowingly allowing uh, that individual to have access to their weapon. Just for finally, the, the fact that school officials met with the parents and this young man uh, on the day of the actual shooting, hours before, again, I know you, there's a lot you can't say, so I, but it's my job to ask. Um, is there something in that meeting mm -hmm. that the parents should have then... Uh, informed the school about, or at the very least, informed somebody about, and or taken away access to the weapon to their child. Is there something that happened in that meeting that should have, could have prevented the course of this if people had acted responsibly? The the event that caused um, the teacher um, concern and that um, had the the school officials bring parents to school um, what was it, it's hard it's hard to look at that what that what was produced at that meeting and everybody looked at it's it's very hard to look at that and say that there was no concern mm. and unfortunately he was allowed to go back to class and we now know that he had a weapon with him at that time and that is simply tragic. And um, it's my job to hold people accountable who violate the law. And, and, and that's, that's all I can say right now. Um, let me just ask, uh, did, did he have the gun in the meeting that with his parents and the school official? Is it, do you know when he got the weapon? I, I think that it's already been public um, that he did have the weapon. And um, during COVID, they don't use lockers, so they, they just have backpacks. So he had a backpack, you believe, in the meeting with the gun in it when he was meeting with school officials and his parents? That's a very strong possibility. Well, Karen McDonald, I, I appreciate the situation you're in and the work you're doing, obviously. And I appreciate you spending some time with us tonight, and I wish you the best. Thank you. Karen McDonald. Coming up next, breaking news. Senators voting any moment now on a bill to keep the government running, but only after Republican lawmakers threatened to shut down if they didn't get their way on weakening what many experts see as a key measure for stopping the spread of COVID.
Let's break news out of the Capitol tonight. The Senate is expected to vote shortly on temporary funding to head off a government shutdown tomorrow at midnight. Around the top of the hour is the latest estimate for when it could happen. The House passed the measure earlier today, but we wouldn't even be doing this at nearly the 11th hour if a group of House and Senate Republicans hadn't been trying to hold up the bill unless it defunded President Biden's directive that large employers require people get vaccinated against COVID or get tested for it regularly. They wanted to shut down the government for that. Simply, they were willing to shut down the entire government with all that entails, including jeopardizing the economy in the name of making it easier for individuals to spread a deadly virus. Said one congressman, Chip Roy of Texas, quote, I think we should be throwing our bodies in front of the train of the continuing resolution while vaccine mandates are in place. Just to be clear, that is not a real train he's talking about, only a real virus and real hypocrisy. Because some of the same lawmakers trying to tie the president's hands on vaccines, mask wearing and other anti-COVID measures are also criticizing his handling of the pandemic. I took President Biden at his word. I took him at his word when he said he was going to get COVID under control. Mr. Speaker, unfortunately, more Americans have died this year than last year under COVID. That's House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, who voted against the continuing resolution tonight, echoing what has become a Republican talking point and a sore point for the White House. These supporters of this uh, of the former president are advocating uh, for shutting the federal government down so that 20 percent of the public who are refusing to get vaccinated or tested can be free to infect their coworkers, our children, filling hospitals, that they that that is what they are advocating for. They want to shut the government down in order to advocate for people to uh, assert that on society. Well, joining us now, CNN political analyst and Axios managing editor Margaret Talev, also CNN political commentator and Democratic strategist Paul Begala. So, Margaret, what does it say that some Republicans feel shutting down the government and undermining vaccines are winning issues for them? Uh, Anderson, the polling shows that for some of those Republicans, that is actually true. Uh, uh, Nationwide, as you know, uh, a clear majority of Americans supports vaccine mandates and and supports getting the vaccine. But that is uh, and that's certainly even more true for Democrats. It's just not true if you look at Republicans uh, alone, Republican voting blocks alone. And when you look at Two of the leaders uh, behind the Senate amendment that's being voted on right now that's going to fail, but the defund vaccine mandate. Um, You're looking at Mike Lee from Utah. You're looking at Roger Marshall from Kansas. These are states where the vaccination rate is like 55 percent, 56 percent. It's below the national average. It's pulling the numbers back. And in their states, in many of the states where you're seeing yes votes right now on this amendment, they have vaccination rates below 50 percent and um, real feeling among many of their constituents that it's a civil liberties issue, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's become politicized and this will come up in primary contests. This will come up in the 2024 presidential primary. Some of the Republicans that you see talking about people's, you know, right not to get vaccinated. These are are people who are either facing primary challenges or are going to be running for president in 2024. And and you're seeing that play out. Well, it does seem to be a a kind of a hypocritical position to be attacking on the, for the president's performance on COVID and at the same time trying to undercut what the president has done to get more people to get vaccinated. Right. It's like they're rooting for the virus instead of the victims. Uh, and I think Margaret makes a really good point. This is increasingly a red state plague. Uh, I looked at, at Senator Marshall particularly. He's a doctor and he has said that he's vaccinated. So he knows better, right? He knows the science. He's a, he's a, he's a medical doctor. 
before he became a senator. And he's from Butler County, Kansas. I looked it up. Butler County, Kansas has uh, 25 cases of COVID right now. San Francisco, more than 10 times the size, only has 45 cases, right? The, 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 the hospitalization rate in Butler County, Kansas is up 38% in the last two weeks. In San Francisco, it's down 19%. Why? Because 77% of San Franciscans are vaccinated and only 44% of Butler County, Kansas is vaccinated. They are, they are dying because of failed leadership and they're being misled. These are good people and they're, they're certainly no, uh, uh, no, no dumber than anybody in San Francisco, but they're being misled by their leaders. And, and Dr. Marshall ought to know better. I cannot believe that, that a man who's a medical doctor would actually be misleading people like this. Margaret, how much control does Mitch McConnell have over the Senate Republican conference at this point? I mean, the former president keeps going after him, calling him a broken old crow, insisting he resign. Are GOP senators really looking to McConnell for their cues? Or, they, or is it all coming from Mar-a-Lago? I mean, you know, it's the right question to be asking. I actually think in tonight's case, Mitch McConnell is showing that he does still have the ability to corral votes when he needs to. What's going to happen is that shutdown, we think, unless something goes horribly weird in the next hour or so, is going to be averted uh, because McConnell and a large block of uh, Republican leaders who are kind of um, uh, the more centrist or traditional uh, Republicans are saying, we're not going to have a shutdown. That's a terrible idea. It's really stupid. Uh, and they managed to work out this deal where there would be a simple majority vote that everybody knew was going to fail so that the people who wanted to go on record in favor of defunding Biden's vaccine mandate could have their say and then the shutdown could still be averted. So I think, McC but, but um, can McConnell, um, you know, can McConnell completely clamp down on the uh, section of the uh, of the party that's giving no. him agita yeah. in the House? No, we know the answer. And can he can he avoid votes like this at all? No, but he's still showing the ability to get things done the way he thinks he needs to. And in this case, he felt pretty strongly and publicly that a shutdown over this was not a good idea. Yeah. But if these wanted to go on the board with their votes, he would help them do it. Margaret Talib, I appreciate it. Paul Begala as well. Uh, up next, more breaking news. The prosecution resting in the trial of actor Justice Smollett, who accused of, who was accused of staging his own hate crime. It was a wild day in court. Surprising accusations or heated exchanges and emotional outbreaks. CNN's Omar Jimenez has more for us coming up next. Breaking news. The prosecution has rested in the trial of former Empire star Justice Smollett after more than three days of testimony. The two brothers accused of attacking Smollett testified that the TV star actually staged the attack. According to the brother, Smollett, who's black and gay, told them to carry out a fake racist and anti-gay hate crime while pretending to be Trump supporters just to garner media attention. But Smollett's attorney called for mistrial today and then became emotional in court, saying the judge wouldn't allow her to continue a critical line of questioning for his defense. She also claims the judge lunged at her during the sidebar, which the judge denies. CNN's correspondent Omar Jimenez uh, joins us now from the courthouse. So, first of all, why is the attorney calling for a mistrial? Yeah, Anderson. So this was because the defense attorney felt the judge demeaned a critical line of questioning, or at least a line of questioning they felt was critical to their defense. This happened during the testimony of Ola Osendero. And basically what was happening was the attorney was asking 
or about potentially homophobic remarks he had made, specifically over text when he described someone as a fruit. And when the defense attorney asked if he would describe a woman that way, the judge said that this line of questioning was collateral. So she asked for a sidebar. The jury was sent out of the room. She called, she and her defense team called for a mistrial. Things escalated. She got emotional and began to sob as she said it was inappropriate for the judge to make that comment about a major portion of their case, at which point she also wanted to say on the record that the judge lunged at her during a sidebar, which, as you mentioned, the judge denied. But a separate defense attorney got up and said that the judge had been making faces during the courses of their objections, and the judge shot back and said, you're really good at making faces. So this was a really tense exchange that played out over the course of a good portion of an hour with the jury out of the room. The jury came back in, though, at one point, and cross-examination with this witness continued calmly, I should say. So the lawyer was crying talking to the judge? Yeah, this came when she was trying to make her point about why what the judge did was so wrong and inappropriate in the course or in the face of the jury, that they felt that this idea that Ola Osendero could have potentially been homophobic was a theory that they had that could have been a potential motivation for what they believe was a real hate crime attack against Jesse Smollett. And so she felt it was a little prejudicial, I guess, in a way. And when he came back, he told the jury not to uh, not to consider those words. Omar Jimenez, appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, Alec Baldwin's first extensive public interview about the deadly shooting of that New Mexico movie set, what he's saying for the first time about the tragedy next. Good evening again. Topping this hour, he says he did not pull the trigger, yet the gun still fired. Alec Baldwin breaking his silence about the shooting on the New Mexico set of his movie Rust that killed the film's cinematographer, Helena Hutchins, and wounded the director, Joel Souza. Baldwin says he was blocking out a scene determining exactly how to hold an antique Colt 45 revolver when the prop gun, which somehow had a live round in it, went off. As you know, this is now the subject of a criminal investigation, and we're going to discuss it with our legal experts shortly, as well as a movie armorer. First, though, Alec Baldwin, for the first time in public, talking detail about the incident with ABC News' George Stephanopoulos. So then I said to her, now in this scene, I'm going to cock the gun. And I said, do you want to see that? And she said, yes. So I take the gun and I start to cock the gun. I'm not going to pull the trigger. I, I said, do you see that? She goes, well, just cheat it down and tilt it down a little bit like that. And I cock the gun. I go, can you see that? Can you see that? Can you see that? And she says, and then I let go of the hammer of the gun and the gun goes off. I let go of the hammer of the gun and the gun goes off. At the moment. That was the moment the gun went off, yeah. That was the moment the gun went off. It wasn't in the script for the trigger to be pulled. Well, the trigger wasn't pulled. I didn't pull the trigger. So you never pulled the trigger? No, 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 no. I I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them, never. Never. That was the training that I had. You don't point a gun at me and and pull the trigger. You have this Colt 45. You just pulled... The hammer as far back as I could without cocking the actual... And you're holding on to the hammer. I'm holding that. I'm just showing. I go, how about that? Does that work? Do you see that? Do you see that? that?" She goes, yeah, that's good. I let go of the hammer. Bang, the gun goes off. Everyone is horrified. They're shocked. Uh, it's loud. They don't have their earplugs in. No one was. The gun was supposed to be empty. I was told I was handed an empty gun. If there were cosmetic rounds, nothing with a charge at all, a flash round, nothing. She goes down. I thought to myself, did she faint? The notion that there was a live round in that gun did not 
dawn on me till probably 45 minutes to an hour later. 45 minutes to an hour? Well, she's laying there and I go, did she get it by wadding? Was there a blank, sometimes those blank rounds have a wadding inside that packs, it's like, like a cloth that packs the gunpowder in. Sometimes wadding comes out and can hit people and it could feel like a little bit of a poke. But no one could understand, did she have a heart attack? Because remember, the idea that someone put a live bullet in the gun was not even in reality. Did you go up to her? Did you back I went away? up to her and then we were immediately we were told to get out of the building. We were forced to get out of the building. The medics came in. I mean, I stood over her for 60 seconds and she just lay there kind of in shock. Was she conscious? Uh, my recollection is yes. Well, criminal defense attorney Sarah Ansari joins us. So does criminal defense attorney and CNN legal analyst Joey Jackson, also veteran Hollywood armor Scott Rasmussen. Scott, let me just ask you, Alec Bolin was saying, which is new information, uh, that he was he had the hammer of the gun pulled back as far as ago without it being co- fully cocked and then just let it go. Isn't that how a gun is fired? I mean, you don't need to pull the trigger if the hammer hits the round. Is that correct? Well, on the type of weapon, it's a single action. In order to get it to fire, you pull the hammer to the rear and then you would pull the trigger. Uh, on his gun, the way he described it, just there in that little segment. Uh, it sounds like possibly the trigger was in the rear position as he was pulling the hammer to the rear. And if that were in fact true, as soon as he let go of the hammer, it would fire the weapon because the hammer would fall forward. Um, so I just want to play that part of it this again, just for, for our viewers, because uh, this is a really important point. So then I said to her, now in this scene, I'm going to cock the gun. And I said, do you want to see that? And she said, yes. So I take the gun and I start to cock the gun. I'm not going to pull the trigger. I, I said, do you see that? She goes, well, just cheat it down and tilt it down a little bit like that. And I cock the gun. I go, can you see that? Can you see that? Can you see that? And she says, and then I let go of the hammer of the gun and the gun goes off. So again, Scott, you're saying that the the trigger would have already, if the trigger was already pulled back, and he was had the hammer in his hand and was pulling it back and, and then just let it go, that would fire the gun. Yes, the, the trigger keeps the hammer from falling. As you pull the hammer to the rear, the trigger engages on it. And then when you pull the trigger, it disengages, allowing the hammer to fall forward and igniting the cartridge. So if the hammer was already to the rear and as he's pulling the hammer back, as he describes, and lets go of that hammer... That's the only way that gun could fire is if the trigger is already to the rear. And if he had decided not to just let go of the hammer, but to have slowly put the hammer back, the gun would not have fired. Is that right? Correct. Yes. If you gently allow the hammer to fall forward, it will not set off the cartridge. So, Sarah, as a criminal defense attorney, I'm wondering what you make of what Alec Baldwin was saying there and turning, he did not pull the trigger. I guess the question then, is it, um, is he liable because he released the hammer as opposed to slowly bringing the hammer back uh, to, to its original position? Well, look, Anderson, I'm not a, a gun girl, but based on what Scott's saying, uh, it really doesn't matter that he didn't pull the trigger because of the position of the trigger. And so at the end of the day, it's about his mishandling of this gun, right? And, and his liability with respect to that. So we're looking at criminal liability and civil liability. He is absolutely certain that he's not facing any 
criminal liability. And I would say never be so sure. You know, uh, he's still there's still statute limitations in New Mexico. They can file charges at any time. Although historically, these two types of shootings on Hollywood sets have been accidents. There's always a first time. But ultimately, if he in fact did not cause the firing of this gun or did not mishandle this gun in a grossly negligent way that rises to the level of criminal negligence under New Mexico law, uh, then then his liability is limited to civil. But if, you know, he's deemed to have, you know, we heard him Anderson talk about assumptions. Um, I believed it was a cold gun. I didn't need to check it. Good for George Clooney who did it, but I didn't need to do that. You know, uh, I just have to rely on what the armorer tells me. So if he's proceeding on assumptions and it turns out that he has a duty to check that gun and mishandled the gun, then he is still criminally exposed. So I, I think there's a little bit of, there was a little bit of, uh, you know, trying to clear himself from all liability. He couldn't even use the word negligent here, let alone mm. gross negligence. Joey, I want to go to you for legal advice, but I also I just want to go back to Scott quickly. Scott, just in in your expert opinion, I mean, is it, was it irresponsible the way the gun, that, that, that Mr. Baldwin was handling the gun in that instance of not putting the trigger, not put, excuse me, not putting the hammer slowly back and just releasing the hammer? Is that, is that mishandling? In my or is opinion, that, in my opinion, he mishandled the weapon, yes. What, what should he have done? He should have checked the weapon to make sure that it was absolutely a cold weapon. That's the first mistake of his. Uh, and then him pulling the weapon, uh, the hammer back and asking Helena uh, about how far back and did she want to see that, uh, that's uh, not what you do on set. You're told what is required of you in the scene. You rehearse it, you go through it with camera, and then you shoot it. And what he's describing to me is uh, not good safety. Joey, what do you make of this? Yeah, you know, there's a reason that attorneys say to their clients not to speak. And I get that there's a public relations imperative here because he wants to get out and head of this. And I'm sure he feels miserable. But you set yourself up for disaster when you do something like this. Why? There's two real tracks here. And Sarah indicated what they are. There's the criminal tract, in which case you could be charged criminally for what you did or did not do for your mishandling of the firearm. There's also the civil aspect in which you are, you know, could be civilly liable at relates to money. And you're talking about how you handle the firearm. And so this gets out and you're going to be cross-examined. You're going to do a deposition civilly and you're going to be asked questions on the oath with respect to what you did and what you did not do. And you've already made statements as, as it relates to you handling that firearm. So it's fair to say that you didn't mention that you checked the firearm. Is that right? And you have an independent obligation to do that, don't you? You spoke about how you handled the gun and how you cocked the trigger back. And you know if you released it, that would put pressure, right, on the gun such that it would go off, but that's what you did. And you were pointing it at another. And so at the end of the day, I think every word he says here is going to be parsed and it's not going to be very, it's not, look, you have a sheriff that's investigating this case, not only as to him, but everybody else. What was ammunition doing in that gun? What was it doing on the set? Who checked the weapon? When did they check it? Did they check it adequately? Apparently not. What were live rounds doing there? What was your own independent obligation as a person who was a producer and an actor on the show? Mm. And you're going, giving this long-winded interview. I just think you shouldn't be doing it. I think it does come down to the mishandling of the firearm. There's no question that there's mishandling here. The issue is whether it's mishandling of the criminal variety or the civil variety, which is limited to money. 
Scott, Alec Baldwin was very firm that it was not his responsibility to make sure the gun was safe. You talked to this just a second ago. He said that's the job of the armor or the prop person, not not the actor. What do you say to that? He's partially correct and partially incorrect. The armor's responsibility is to ensure that that weapon is set to be on set the way it's supposed to be, whether it's shooting blanks or not shooting. The actor is responsible for ensuring that that weapon is checked before he gets it. In other words, the armor's responsibility is to bring the weapon to the actor, demonstrate to the actor that the gun is empty. Then if they're going to put cartridges in it, dummy rounds, shake the cartridges. They rattle. They have a BB in them. And have the actor acknowledge that, yes, that's a dummy. Then you load the gun with those dummy rounds. Then the armor points the gun at the ground, cocks the hammer, pulls the trigger for all six cartridges to demonstrate that it's a safe weapon. And then at that point, the actor can check it himself, which I encourage an actor to do, or he can acknowledge and say, yes, I witnessed that you did this and it's a safe weapon. Mm. And that apparently was not done. Sir, I want to play another clip from the interview where Alec Baldwin addressed the idea that the movie's budget possibly contributed, the lower budget, uh, contributed to the tragedy. Let's watch. When people say cutting costs, I don't say this with any judgment or any cynicism. Spielberg wants to save money. Tom Cruise wants to save money. Everybody who makes movies has a responsibility not to be reckless and careless with the money that you're given. We know those are men who make movies that cost $205 million. And I'm making movies that cost $5 million. The question, though, is were costs being cut at the expense of safety and security? In my my opinion, no, because I did not... Now, I did not observe any safety or security issues at all in the time I was there. So what's important to point out, Alec Baldwin, I guess, was a producer on this film. So I guess he has a, a that's a whole other uh, layer of potential liability. Right, Anderson, as a producer, obviously he has uh, superior authority, he has superior duties, right, and, and responsibilities that he's obviously failed here. Now, he carefully says in this interview, uh, you know, I'm a creative producer. I didn't have any stake in the financial aspect of, of this production or uh, the, the hiring decisions. Um, so when you when you really take this interview in, in, in its totality, he's really carefully just stripping away at any possible fact that's bad for him. You know, he's not liable as an actor. He's not liable as a producer. Hmm. Sarah, and sorry. Appreciate it. Joey Jackson, Scott Rasmussen as well. I really appreciate your expertise. Thank you. Coming up next, the president's new anti-COVID measures with a heavy emphasis on boosters, but also the reluctance still of people to roll up their sleeves and a new measure of just how politically driven that decision might be. Also, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, after reportedly writing in his book that the former president tested positive for COVID three days before his first presidential debate last year, Meadows is now saying, well, something kind of different. We'll tell you ahead. No shortage of COVID news tonight. President Biden today unveiling new COVID fighting measures, amping up calls for everyone who's eligible for a booster to get one. Pfizer asking for expanded authorization so that younger people can get boosted. And as expected, more seven more cases of the new Omicron variant of the virus. Latest five here in New York State. Joining us now is Dr. Shijat, Dean of the Brown University School of Public Health. So Dr. Shijat, you're about these five Omicron infections in New York, plus now Minnesota, Colorado, the one announced yesterday in California. How important is it for people to 
you know, stay calm as more cases are certainly likely to be announced in the coming days and weeks. I mean, it seems like this has been here for, for some time as more cases are identified. Yeah, Anderson, first of all, thanks for having me back. Uh, absolutely. I, there's no question in my mind we have community transmission of this uh, variant now uh, in the U.S. Uh, the fact that it's in different parts of the country, California, Minnesota, Colorado, New York, uh, suggests that uh, there's probably places in between those places where there's spread. Um, the key questions about Omicron, Omicron still remain, right? How well are our vaccines hold up? Are they going to cause more severe disease? Will it spread quickly under a context where there's a lot of Delta vi- uh, variant around? Still don't know the answers to those questions. Uh, that's why I think people should continue to pay attention uh, to those questions. But we are going to see more cases ahead. The president outlined this plan today to fight COVID this winter, including asking private insurers to reimburse the cost of at-home tests, allowing rural clinics to offer free at-home tests for those who don't have insurance. I mean, given that testing has been something the country has struggled with, frankly, since the start of the pandemic, is is this a game changer in any way? Is this just an ascent, something that's just an obvious step to take? I think it's a step forward. I mean, look, uh, the, the tests are still way too expensive. In Europe, you can get them for about a buck a piece. In the U.S., it's $8, $10, $12 a test. Uh, for a lot of people, if you want the whole families to be taking it on a regular basis, that's prohibitive. So I like the idea of trying to reduce the cost to patients, to uh, consumers. But we've got to make a lot more of these tests a lot more widely available, and we've got to bring the prices down uh, so everybody can get them. And you don't have to go through your insurance, ideally. So I think it's a step forward, but not a game changer. Uh, how difficult would that be? I mean, to, to, to get more of them out there, have them to be cheaper? Yeah, I think the administration is trying. I think the problem here, to be perfectly honest, is the administration did not put a lot of time and energy into testing uh, and making sure we had enough tests during the spring and summer. Uh, They put all of their energy on vaccines. And don't get me wrong, I love the vaccines, huge part of the strategy. But I think they took their eye off the ball. Now they're trying to play catch up on testing. They are making progress. They've got to do more. Dr. Shisha, appreciate your time as always. Thank you. Thank you. More now on the obstacles to getting enough people vaccinated, let alone boosted, to bring this all to an end one day. As you might imagine, they involve politics and misinformation, the effects of which are showing up in new polling. And for that, we turn to CNN senior data reporter Harry Enten with more. So um, what are you looking at? I mean, look, if you look right now where we are as a country, look among adults. What do you see? You see north of 80 percent of folks have gotten at least one dose. But then you look at the fully vaccinated and that drops down to just a little bit north of 70 percent. Now look at those who have actually gotten the booster. It's less than 20%. Now, obviously, the race to get people boosted up has only just begun. But even if you look at the polling, there's new polling out from the Kaiser Family Foundation. What does it show? It shows that only about 53% of adults say they have either gotten or will likely get the booster. And that's only a little bit changed from last month with 50%, or two months ago in October, 50%. So at this particular point, yeah, we've gone in there in terms of first doses, but when it comes to boosters, we're a long ways off. It also breaks down politically by state, red state, blue state. It absolutely does. And you know what? If you look right now and you look at among those who are fully vaccinated, you see that over 50% of Republicans are. But you see with Democrats, it's significantly higher, and you have about a 30-point gap. Now look at the boosters. And what do you see? You see of an even wider, this huge partisan gap, north of 40 percentage points. And if you look among Republicans, only a little bit north of 33 percent, I believe it's 37 percent in that poll or 36 percent in that poll that say that they are, in fact, going to get the booster. And you know what? And if you look at the death rates right now, you see that they are much higher 
in red states than they are in blue states. And I think these numbers give you an idea of why that is. You know, Andy Slavitt, the former White House senior advisor, he uh, said today that the, uh, the administration underestimated the Delta variant and clearly that they're trying to not make the same mistake with, the, with, with Omicron. How do Americans view how the administration is handling this? Yeah, you know, President Biden won last year for one reason and one reason only. And that was because voters did not like the way that President Trump handled the coronavirus. And if you look back in February, what you saw was overwhelmingly, overwhelming support for the way that Joe Biden was handling the coronavirus pandemic. Mm -hmm. But today, more people disapprove than approve of the job that he's doing. Mm -hmm. And more than that, if you look at the folks who actually approve of the job, they're Democrats. They're the vaccinated. The folks that this administration actually has to reach, the Republicans and the unvaccinated, you look at the numbers, what you see is only about 15 percent or less of both of those groups actually approve of the president's job of handling the virus. What about va- support for vaccine mandates? Uh, support for vaccine mandates, it's about a 50-50 split. Slightly more folks are for it than against it. But if you look at the polling trend line, you see it going in the wrong direction in mm-hmm. terms of vaccine mandates. Fewer people today support vaccine mandates than did in either October or in September. Wow. Harry Enten, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Up next, new CNN reporting reveals how former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows pushed federal agencies to pursue false election claims. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows' new cooperation with the January 6th House Select Committee could give investigators a valuable window into how the former president and his allies tried to enlist government officials to pursue baseless election conspiracy theories. Senior legal affairs correspondent Paul Reed joins us now with new reporting. So what can you tell us about what Meadows was up to? Well, Anderson, this new reporting reveals how Meadows reached out to some of the country's top national security officials in an effort to connect them with Trump allies who were pushing unfounded claims of foreign election interference and voter fraud. Now, sources tell CNN that Meadows did this because he wanted so very much to please the former president, who was hyper-focused on injecting these baseless theories into official government channels. Now, Meadows attempts to pressure officials at the Justice Department. Those have been well-documented. But we've learned that Meadows also reached out to officials at the FBI, Pentagon, National Security Council, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence about various election fraud claims. Anderson, at one point, he said he, he presented them with what he said was potential evidence of a massive conspiracy by China to hack the U.S. election by using thermostats to change the voting results. Wow. Uh, so how could this impact the House Select Committee's investigation? That's going well, this, on? Is, this is certainly going to be of interest to the committee. Next week, Meadows is expected to appear for a deposition with lawmakers. But what will be of significant interest to the committee is the fact that he continued to push these theories even after officials had established that the election was valid. So I think that's going to be of significant interest to the committee, the way he was trying to undermine confidence in the election results, passing along election fraud information from outside advisors like Mike Flynn and Sidney Powell, and saying he was doing it all at Trump's behest. Anderson Meadows' attorney did not respond to CNN's request for comment on this story. We have a lot more details that we've uncovered. Our colleagues Zach Cohen, Sarah Murray, and myself, you can read the full story Mm. on CNN.com. It's fascinating. Paula, stick around. I want to get some perspective uh, also from CNN legal analyst Norm, Norm Eisen, who was special counsel to the Democrats in the former president's first impeachment trial. So, Ambassador Eisen, do you think Meadows' role as this election conspiracy conduit puts him in any kind of legal jeopardy? Uh, Anderson, I do think it puts him in legal jeopardy. Uh, We have laws in the United States against election fraud, and and that is uh, the 
um, uh, uh, apparent uh, activity that is at least alleged here. And the, and the January 6th committee is get, apparent, get driving forward to get to the bottom of it. You know, you can't you can't act as a go between uh, on the one hand, outside groups that are pushing patently fr- fraudulent claims and uh, government officials who have the responsibility to make uh, decisions about these matters. So I think it's some of the uh, worst possible conduct that we've seen since White House chief of staff for Richard Nixon, H.R. Haldeman. We all know what happened to him. And uh, Ambassador, Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff, who's obviously one of the nine members of the January 6th Select Committee, said that if Meadows discussed the events of January 6th in his book, he waives any claims of privilege. Is that right? I mean, is that true? Uh, that is true. Uh, you know, we talk about these legal theories, executive privilege, attorney-client privilege. Privilege simply means the legal right not to talk about something. But Anderson, once you've talked about it publicly for profit to get a book advance and to sell copies of that volume, um, you, you've waived the, the, those legal protections. Uh, and so uh, Meadows is in uh, a very perilous uh, spot here and a critically important witness as this 1-6 committee is doing such a good job of driving forward every day, pushing towards the truth to make sure that these kinds of activities, these apparent uh, election fraud conspiracies can't happen again. Paula, we know Meadows has agreed to an initial deposition by the committee after a long time of kind of back and forth. What are the expectations of, I mean, how forthcoming he may or may not be? The committee is cautiously optimistic. Look, he's arguably the most significant witness for the committee, both because he was in such close proximity to the president, but also based on our reporting and other reports, his efforts to try to undermine confidence in the election outcome. As a former congressman, he does not appear to want to be held in contempt or charged with contempt. That's not only a cost to your reputation, but it's also very expensive to defend yourself in a criminal proceeding. And sources have told me he just doesn't have the same war chest that someone like Steve Bannon has. Now, as a former chief of staff, though, he does have more uh, potential privilege protections than any other witnesses. But we've seen so far the committee nor the Biden White House uh, appear to be willing to raise those or assert those or defend those. But it's an ongoing negotiation. I have a lot of questions about these emails uh, that he's been sharing so far. What does he have? that the archives doesn't have. Mm. Anything that's material to January 6th should be in the possession of the archives. So a big question about whether they're actually going to get significant cooperation from Mark Meadows. Again, I'm a little bit skeptical. Ambassador Eisen, do you think Meadows is, is kind of trying to walk the line between cooperating and, and being held in contempt, trying to stay in, in the former president's good graces? No doubt, Anderson. He, he, he is uh, tiptoeing uh, on the tightrope. But Uh, You know, he lives in the real world. He sees the erosion in the courts where the uh, former president's uh, executive privilege claims are being thrown out because he's not president anymore. He doesn't have uh, the power to enforce those. In the absence of that, Meadows has no ability to come in and refuse to talk. I'm sure he's going to make it as difficult as possible, but it does seem that he's turning over documents uh, and uh, he could be a very critical witness because, because, of course, the big question, the reason that the, the former president and so many others are fighting so hard is 
uh, there's information that it would appear they don't want to come out. Some of it may be in these Meadows documents. So we'll have to see uh, the committee uh, as they tell us more and more about what they've found. Norm Eisen, Paula Reed, appreciate it. Thank you. Some breaking news now from the intersection of COVID and politics. The Senate, moments ago, following the House and approving emergency funding to keep the government running, but only after an effort by Republican lawmakers to block it unless they had a chance to defund what the White House and plenty of public health experts say is a key weapon on the fight against COVID, the requirement that employees at large companies get vaccinated or tested regularly for the virus. They had a vote on that, failed, and the funding measure passed by a vote of 69 to 28. Up next, how former Vice President Pence could make a run for the White House in 2024, even if his old boss gets in the race. What some key Republicans who work for both men now say ahead. Tonight, perhaps the biggest question in Republican politics isn't about the midterms, and it's not even whether the former president will run again. It's about whether his own former vice president would take him on. Mike Pence is silent for the moment, but he is dropping some breadcrumbs. Pence is spending time in New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Iowa, which are obviously key states for early primaries and caucuses. Pence's actions upholding democracy on January 6th made him a villain to some in the modern Republican Party, but maybe not to everyone. Top insiders in the last administration shared their thoughts in a new article in The Atlantic. They talked to Peter Nicholas, who covers the White House for the magazine, and he joins us now. Peter, it's a fascinating uh, article that you have. What are the chances you think that Mike Pence's presidential ambitions are greater than his fealty to the former president? Well, I think that he's been um, wanting to run for president for a long time. I mean, he has a a mentor in Dan Quayle, the former vice president, and they've discussed the possibility back in 2012. Pence was considering um, the best path to the uh, presidency then. So ambition dies hard, and it's not easily easily quashed. So I think 2024 might well be Mike Pence's uh, last and best chance. He'll be 65 years old, and there are younger, fresher faces coming along in the Republican Party. You look at Glenn Youngkin and his victory in Virginia. So uh, if Pence wants to do this and wants to fulfill this ambition, he may have to uh, run against his former boss and Donald Trump. Even if his former boss, though, isn't running, I mean, given what he did on January 6th and, and going against the former president, you know, can he win in primaries? And I know you spoke to Mike Pence's former chief of staff about the idea of the former vice president being called to serve. He, he kind of refers to it as a biblical call. Yeah, he talks about um, being, if he feels that he's called to serve, he would run independent of what anyone else does. And by anyone else, we mean, of course, Donald Trump. Now, there are people in the Republican Party who work with both um, Trump and Pence who say it's kind of ludicrous. So we quoted um, Mick Mulvaney, Trump's former chief of staff, who said, look, what is Mike Pence is a nice guy, but what is Mike Pence offering that 15 other Republicans in the field are not offering? Well, Mike Pence can say he was vice president, but we saw in 2016 that Republican voters don't necessarily care about experience. They elected Donald Trump. So it's really not a credential that seems to matter anymore in the modern Republican Party. Well, yeah. And, and I mean, again, just to get through the, the primary process and set yourself apart, I mean, Mike Pence is not exactly a stirring orator um, <laughs> or a, you know, uh, a entertaining figure like the former president is to his base. Well, I think that's an important point. I mean, you wonder, like, what it's very hard to detect the Pence for president movement out there. Like, where are the Pence diehards who are going to walk, trudge through the snow in Iowa, New Hampshire in uh, January and February to try to win primaries and caucuses for Mike Pence? You just don't see it. It's very it's possible there might be some more moderate Republicans who appreciate that he um, 
he upheld Joe Biden's victory in the uh, last election. But those same people may well feel that he enabled Trump over four years. He catered to Trump's whims. He did Trump's bidding. And they might still be resentful about that. So again, it's very hard to see uh, a lane for Pence. Yeah. And and I mean, the people who had trudged through the snow to go to a Mike Pence rally might be going to scream at him because (laughs) of what he did on January 6th. I mean, they seem to be the ones who are the diehards um, who would be really motivated more against Mike Pence than anybody really care. I mean, you you can't imagine somebody carrying a banner with the name Pence on it, uh, you know, running through the streets. Yeah, I, I spoke to some of people close to Pence about this, and they insist that some in the MAGA movement uh, remain uh, loyal to Pence. They like Pence. Pence gets a uh, – uh, there are a lot of people, uh, candidates, Republican candidates who want to campaign with Pence. Uh, Pence is popular at fundraisers. But there's a big difference between that and, you know, trying to build a coalition, you know, an electoral coalition. And it's just hard to see what it is. I mean, Pence might attract some Christian conservatives perhaps – um, you know, possibly some moderate Republicans, maybe if Trump doesn't run a small fraction of the MAGA movement. But remember, there were people on January 6th who were supporting Trump and who are walking through the halls of Congress uh, wanting to hang Mike Pence. Yeah. Well, you don't, that's, uh, you're not going to get votes out of that group. Yeah. Peter Nicholas, uh, it's a fascinating article. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Anderson. Ahead, the sex trafficking trial of Jeffrey Epstein's longtime companion. A witness testifies about what he saw, and an alleged code of silence. The foremost reporter of this entire scandal is here next. The sex trafficking trial of Jeffrey Epstein's longtime confidant continues tomorrow. Galen Maxwell could spend the rest of her life behind bars if she's convicted. The alleged victims include girls then only 14 years old. A former house manager testified today that, quote, many, many, many females went through Epstein's Palm Beach, Florida home, including some of the late billionaire's underage accusers. He also claimed women would sit by the pool, often topless, around Epstein and Maxwell. And he said an employee manual demanded that when it came to Epstein, Maxwell and their guests, quote, you see nothing, hear nothing, say nothing except to answer a question. Maxwell denies any wrongdoing. Investigative reporter Julie K. Brown of the Miami Herald uncovered the Epstein scandal years ago, was at the courthouse today. She's the author, Perversion of Justice, the Jeffrey Epstein Story. Julie, thanks for being with us. I'm wondering what you make of, of what's come out of the trial so far, um, particularly the testimony and the atmosphere at Epstein's home. Well, I think they, it was a good move calling Juan Alessi this houseman today because it follows on after they had um, one of the victims testified yesterday, Jane. And Alessi, to some degree, corroborated some of what the victim said uh, yesterday in that she was at, his, at Epstein's house with Maxwell when she was only 14 years old. And uh, Alessi recalls seeing her. So I, I think part of that was to corroborate what she had testified to the day before. And, and the, t- the house manager specifically recalled, uh, not just her, he was specifically recalled two girls coming to the house that he believed were, were underage. One of them was Jane, as you, as you just mentioned, uh, who had testified uh, the defense tried to undermine Jane's testimony from 20 plus years ago. Did the house manager's testimony, I mean, did it change much other than placing her there? It, it didn't. And really what it did was, I think, give the jury a feel for how dysfunctional or how strange this whole situation was. I mean, imagine you're a houseman and one of your jobs is to call uh, women and have them come three times a different one every few hours to give Epstein massages. 
and then you go out to the pool and there's a bunch of women out there without any clothes on. So I think that they're drawing a picture of what kind of a operation, so to speak, or what kind of a culture was existed at that uh, Palm Beach mansion. Prosecutors also brought in an expert on traumatic stress to testify about grooming. How effective do you think that witness was? It's hard to say, you know, she was limited in what she could testify to. As you can imagine, Maxwell's attorneys uh, had uh, raised a number of objections about this expert. And uh, she could, she never evaluated any of the victims. She spoke just generally about trauma and about grooming, uh, how predators groom children. I, I think it was educational probably for them if they weren't aware of what grooming is. Not everybody does, but that's what essentially prosecutors are saying uh, Epstein and Maxwell did with Jane. They took time. They, I mean, that it was a, a whole process uh, of getting her to the position where uh, she would do with what they wanted. The, the um, you know, you, we talked about Jane, the first of four alleged victims scheduled to testify. You've talked about the the testimony of the last victim as being perhaps uh, very important. It, why? Well, unlike Jane, Jane was young and she, of course, was, you know, re- allegedly anyway, recruited by Epstein and Maxwell and then groomed. But she she wasn't part of the pyramid scheme that Epstein was operating at his Palm Beach mansion. She wasn't a recruiter. She wasn't one of those people who were integral to making this whole scheme work. The vic- the last victim that was added to the case, uh, you know, roughly about six months to a year ago, she was part of that um, system that that allegedly that Maxwell set up in that she started by recruiting one girl and then they asked that girl to recruit two more girls and it went on and on. So it'll be interesting to see what this other victim says about about how this whole operation worked. I mean, you broke this story open. I'm wondering with all the work that you did, the extraordinary work in reporting you did, what's it like for you now to, to, to see this all play out in court? I, you know, I, I, I'm a little worried about the case. I, I'm hoping that, that it's going to get stronger as it goes on. I, I think that um, the prosecutors are, are very good. But, you know, Maxwell has some very aggressive attorneys who are really uh, grilling, at least from what we've seen so far, who are really grilling, um, you know, the victim at least. And, you know, they already had the pilot on and and he didn't help their case, the prosecution's case at all. He never saw any sex. He never saw anything bad. He didn't know of any underage girls that were ever on the plane. I mean, he, he didn't help their case. Mm. And they led with him, right? Um, well, he lived, you know, he lived on the property. At one no, no I, I mean, they led with him. He was the first witness that they called, wasn't he? I'm sorry. Yeah, he he was the yeah. first. Um, yeah, it was kind of surprising that they called him. Yeah. I uh, guess they wanted to establish, um, you know, the plane trip and the fact that that there was travel involved because right. you know it is a sex trafficking case. Yeah, uh, Julie K. Brown again. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up Thank next, you. the growing concerns over tennis star Peng Shuai. What Chinese officials are saying now. An update now on Chinese tennis star Peng Shuai, who, as you know, disappeared from public view for more than two weeks following her sexual assault allegations against a former top Chinese Communist Party official. Wednesday, the Women's Tennis Association took action on her behalf. 
Brian Todd has details. Concerns about the safety of Chinese tennis star Peng Shuai are ramping up tonight, despite a second call she had with the International Olympic Committee. The IOC said after its call with her on Wednesday that Peng, quote, reconfirmed that she was safe and well. But the IOC didn't provide any audio or visual images of the call. And the Women's Tennis Association chairman told CNN today he believes the IOC is allowing itself to get played by the Chinese government. We just feel very strongly that this is, is certainly being uh, orchestrated. The WTA has taken the strongest stance yet in standing up to China over its treatment of Peng, the organization suspending all of its tournaments in China, potentially costing it hundreds of millions of dollars. The IOC uh, is now being given a masterclass, frankly, by the WTA on how to basically punch a bully in the nose. The world's number one ranked men's player is backing the WTA's move. I think it's a very bold, very... Um courageous stance from, from WTA. In a since-deleted social media post in early November, Peng publicly accused a top Chinese Communist Party official, former Vice Premier Zhang Gaoli, of coercing her into sex at his home three years ago. She was censored by the Chinese regime, disappeared from public view for more than two weeks. After an international outcry, Chinese state-controlled media released so-called proof-of-life photos and videos of Peng. But analysts are concerned about her actual condition. If you don't think that she is under an enormous amount of psychological pressure uh, from the CCP, from the authorities, uh, given that she has posed very embarrassing charges against a senior Chinese official, uh, you're crazy. I think it is safe to say that she is under very tightly controlled circumstances, that she does not have the ability to communicate freely uh, with the outside world. Experts say one potential nightmare scenario for Beijing has to do with the Winter Olympics it's hosting in a couple of months. I think this is absolutely going to increase the pressure to at least not have diplomatic presence uh, at the Winter Olympics, and Beijing is unhappy about that. That was Brian Todd reporting. The news continues. Time to hand it over to Don and Don Lemon tonight. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.